Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking interest rates. The rate of interest, or the price of money, has a profound impact on the energy and commodities sector, influencing the cost of carry, the price of assets, and investment decisions. The story we're about to tell is what happens to economies and societies and the energy and commodities sector when interest rates are unnaturally low, as we've experienced since the global financial crisis. In this episode, we're going to talk about interest rates in the context of the last commodity supercycle, how it's driven investment decisions over the last decade, what that means for energy transition and a number of projects that have been launched, if interest rates continue to rise or whether political pressure will mount and interest rates start to lower. Our guest is Edward Chancellor. Edward is the author of The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, published by Atlantic Monthly Press. Edward is a British financial historian, finance journalist, and former investment strategist. He's noted for his prescient warnings on major economic bubbles, has many awards and accolades, and described by Fortune magazine as one of the greatest financial historians alive. I also want to take a moment to recommend my friends over the Redefining Energy podcast. Gerard Reed and Laurent Segelin, both have been guests on the HC Insider podcast. The Redefining Energy podcast comes out twice a month. Each episode tackles a different angle on how the world of energy is being radically redefined through tech innovations, finance, markets, regulation, and digitization. And I cannot recommend enough. As always, you can really support the show and allow us to get more guests like Edward on if you leave a positive review in the platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Edward, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this discussion. I think uh, listeners know that we've, we've quoted your book a few times, uh, The Price of Time. And really, it's a story of interest rates and the story of, of low and high interest rates and their short-term impacts, but also their long-term structural impacts on economies and people. And in some ways, turning something or at least highlighting that perhaps some heuristic beliefs about interest rates and things like inequality and strength of economy are, are wrong. The first half of the book is very much about the history of interest rates and rooting us into this sort of emergent debate about what they are and are they good, are they evil? But let's start at the very beginning. Interest rates started in the ancient Near East. Can you just start us there? Because it's you know, the, the fascinating tie-in with biology that, that, that sort of justifies their existence. We have records of, in ancient Mesopotamia, of people lending at interest. And there, were, there are these clay tablets that still exist today that record the debt contracts and the rate of interest that were being charged. And typically, typically the charge was um, 25% for silver loan annual and 33% for a barley loan. But we also have, in the etymologies of the ancient languages, whether it's uh, Mesopotamian, Assyrian, Greek, ancient Greek, Egyptian, the word for interest is always linked to the productivity of an animal, of a livestock. So... Uh, relating to a calf or a goat or a... I think that even in prehistoric periods, uh, interest was being charged by lenders to farmers who were then taking grain or a, a loan of cattle or whatever, or some other livestock, and then paying back some of the, the profit. In fact, we find in, in, in America, in the early 20th century, farmers in the in the Midwest were lending cattle and being paid back the, the cow plus a calf in a year's time. So that ancient connection between uh, productivity uh, of the loan is, is embedded in the, in the etymology of the word interest. There's, then there's sort of this, there's the, the moral strictures applied to interest for quite, you know, I mean, really a thousand years or so, if not more, all the way up to the Enlightenment. This And it's, you know, encoded in the Bible, you know, other beliefs, you know, th this idea of usury and interest is essentially evil, it's theft, it's immoral, you know, and, and, and there's all sorts of workarounds because, you know, for a variety of reasons described in the book. 
yeah, so there are sort of two sides to interest. There's one interest as the productive loan, and the Mesopotamians, you find that their merchants were borrowing money to go on voyages, commercial voyages abroad, or for trading or and, and light industry. So that's the sort of benign side of interest. The malign uh, side of interest, or usury, as it was called, is where interest is lent at high rates to people in in need, is lent at extortionate rates, that the interest compounds over time and becomes more and more unpayable, and that the borrower, at worst, gets into a position of debt bondage or slavery. We find that, again, in Mesopotamia, in Greece, in Rome, throughout the ancient world, and then in in the modern world, in in less developed countries where the problem of of debt bondage uh, still exists to the current day. And it's from that tradition of sort of exploitation that the strictures against usury or lending at interest uh, originate. Mm. And they were, um, you find that in in the Bible, uh, you find it in in the ancient Greek philosophers, uh, Aristotle and Plato denounced usury. And then Aristotle's view that money uh, was not productive and that therefore the lender who charged interest was was asking for more in return than he'd actually provided. That view finds its way into the teachings of the early Christian church and into the Catholic church throughout the Middle Ages. So Thomas Aquinas, uh, if we have yeah. five millennia, yeah, I mean, if we have five millennia of interest, we've got really at least four and a half mi- millennia of people denouncing interest. And and my um, the aim of my book really is to is to try and provide a, a balance, and and in particular to draw attention to the fact that as you know, Europe shifted in the Middle Ages uh, from being a primarily a, a you know feudal agricultural society into a what we might recognize as a capitalist society that in that um capitalist society requires capital and in order to get someone to part from with their capital uh, it's only fair that they should be re- provided with some reward and so the the emergence of capitalism in 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 Italy in the um in the middle ages coincides with the development of banking but also uh, with numerous uh, evasions of the Catholic rules against usury. Mm. This is yeah, exactly. And but it strikes me, and and one I think the interesting comment, just going back to sort of the antiquity, was you had this idea of these jubilees where they recognised that debt bondage was a problem, and every seven and every fifty years you'd have these sort of in various societies these debt cancellations. But the it, it strikes me that part of the reason why you have these views from, you know, and obviously Aristotle, the Catholic Church inherits a lot of those Aristotelian views, as you say, is that there's, there's very little understanding. There's very little philosophy and thought that's really going into what, what is money. And therefore, what are, what is interest? What is risk? And as you say, you kind of start to get that kind of analysis coming up in the Enlightenment and you have, Adam Smith and, and Hume and so forth talking about it. Can you just give us some, you know, when do we stumble upon this idea of, of essentially, as you say in the book, selling time and the idea of interest being a compensation for risk and departing from your capital? When, when do we, when did that get codified? So, so the, the, the question of selling time, the, the, one, one of the mistakes that Aristotle appears to have made, uh, in his denunciation of interest was he's assuming that the lender is is giving something and then receiving more back, but he ignores the fact that you're that that, that loans take place over time, and a, one of the nineteenth century scholars, an Englishman called Thomas of Cobbon, writing about lend usury, says that the user is a seller of time, which is true. I mean, if I were to lend you some money for a period of time, I would be selling you the use of my capital for that period. But then the medieval scholars d- said that time belonged to God, 
which is the sort of view of a sort of theocratic society. But as you move into the Renaissance, there's a change in view, which is that time belongs to the individual and is time is scarce, time is man's most precious possession. Or as Benjamin Franklin was later say in the 18th century, time is money. And once time is money, then actually a charge for the use of the time, a charge for the use of capital becomes quite reasonable. In the 17th century, the English philosopher, John Locke, argued that there shouldn't be laws restricting the maximum rate of usury, but that interest should be charged at its natural rate, the natural rate being the price at which a borrower and lender could agree in an unforced transaction, just as the natural price for any other commodity. And that, that that's the sort of, I'd say, was the beginning of, if you will, a sort of rational view of interest. Uh, the trouble is that even you know, since that date, there's always been people pushing for ever l- lower interest <laughs> or interest below what Locke would consider the, the natural rate. So one sort of little um, further p- building block there is, so there is this kind of, yeah, there's this debate about what is the, you know, therefore what is the natural rate and you there's sort of a, a rough agreement which i think is going to be pertinent to the next half of this story as it picks up with people as you say trying you know pushing for lower interest rates is this rough idea that if you look back through history and you've got a number of charts to d- display this and, and and the various thinking on it is the natural rate should whatever that is should somehow match the growth rate of an economy and it's when you get the large disparities between those. That's an argument that I put forward. Um, they, they, I also argue uh, that the natural rate can be noticed by its absence. It's, you know, the problem with the natural rate is that um, you know one can one can argue about it, but it's unobservable. Uh, the the modern economists tend to believe that the natural rate is measured by whether there's inflation or deflation in the system. And that's the only way they recognize it. I I say the argument of my book is that interest has a number of effects. It's used to price assets, so used in valuation. Uh, It's a cost of leverage. And uh, I argue, you know, if if you if you have, you know, an asset, you know, period of asset price inflation and rapid credit growth, then you can be pretty sure that the natural rate, that the interest rate is currently below its natural rate, even if there is no inflation or deflation mm. going on at the time. And and that's where, and this story is so consequential for the, the community that is listening to this, the energy and commodities world, because, you know, they sit at the very heart of, obviously, you know, asset prices, but in particular, the cost of carry. And, you know, we're talking very high volumes, low margins, and these tiny fluctuations in this can have a big impact on the performance of a business. So setting that up, so you, you identify, we, we, we get up to sort of the, the early 18th century and kind of, okay, we've, we've got a better understanding of what risk is, what interest rates are, the, the function of money. And as, almost as soon as you've got that in place, people start to play with it. And this idea of, you know, there's this, this chap called um, John Law, fascinating, fascinating individual, I've read about him a couple of times, um, not least he was in the, uh, the Madness of Crowds, if I remember rightly. But you have this, this sort of phrase that comes over the middle section of this book, this idea that John Bull can't stand 2%. And John Bull being the sort of the archetypal English person, uh, can we start there and kind of like, I mean, it really is, I guess, very quickly, that Mississippi scheme as an illustration of someone artificially lowering the interest rates. And you get this very yes. much you know, a, a massive asset bubble that uh, has extreme consequences. Yeah, so so people normally tell the story of the Mississippi bubble, of John Law's Mississippi bubble, as, as just an example of you know, irrash- what we would now call irrational exuberance or animal spirits. But the way... I tell the story is that Law, John Law is a Scottish uh, projector, economist, gambler who um, comes to France in the early 18th century and he wants to reform uh, France's economy and financial system and he persuades the regent of France to let him set up a a bank uh, which becomes a 
a central bank. Um, and he, he then persuades the region to replace the gold and silver money with, with, with paper money issued by the central bank. And then he, by increasing the note issuance, law manages to lower interest rates from about 8% to 2%. And he's also running this giant holding company called the Mississippi Company. And the share prices in the Mississippi Company uh, rise 20-fold, so great speculative bubble. And they trade, quite tellingly, on a price-earnings ratio of 50 times, which, as you know, is equivalent to an earnings yield of 2%. Yeah. And given Currently that all the, the S&P 500, uh, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, where the S&P 500 probably was uh, or approaching the year before last. Um, <laughs> and the, and law, law argued that the value of the Mississippi company was justified in relation to the low rate of interest. And then uh, it all came unstuck because uh, inflation, not asset price inflation, but commodity price inflation occurred. And law in the end pulled the plug on his scheme, withdrew the notes from circulation and the bubble burst. So there is the really uh, first example of a central banker manipulating the money supply in order to bring down interest, initially fueling asset price inflation, just like the quantitative easing did in the last decade, and then over-egging it <laughs> and ending up with a good old-fashioned consumer price inflation, mm. followed by the bubble bursting. So we've really sort of repeated the history of the Mississippi company. It's eerily, eerily. Yeah, and it's not just yeah. eerily, um, it's not just eerily repetitive. It's that the central bankers themselves considered John Law to be their model. They sort of, they took one part of the John Law story. Look, we can print money and bring down interest rates and manipulate the economy. They took that side of the story and they ignored the downside which, you know, anyone reading the history would have thought you can't just, you know, you can't take the smooth and ignore the rough. So, I mean, I, I did a lot of, you know, obviously I wrote all that stuff, um, you know, on law saying what a, you know, what disaster it was for central bankers to be imitating him. I wrote all that before, you know, the, before the 2021, 22 inflation started to surge through the system. But, you know, for me, it was really always on the cards. Mm. And and just to put it in the scale, right, at the time, you know, a couple of years into his scheme, and, and, and John Law, I mean, this was, is an incredible character, incredibly smart, you know, got exiled from the UK over a duel. You know, it was an incredible, you know, he would today, gosh knows which hedge fund he would Yes. <laughs> but incredibly smart. And at the time, he was, he was the, he was the smart, he was the richest man on the planet and that the planet ever, ever lived had in terms of. Yeah, whoever lived, and then died, if I remember rightly, uh, uh, you know, in a pauper's grave. Not quite a pauper. He, he, Law was a gambler, and after he lost his Mississippi fortune, but he he went off to Venice, where he he, he Law had a tremendous head for figures and could calculate the probabilities of dice sequences appearing, and would earn because he he his Law sense probabilities were in. In advance of what was known in the early 18th century, he he earned a sort of decent living <laughs> from that. But I mean, I think it's as I point out in the book, it's it's sort of interesting that we get to these periods of you know the richest people who ever lived, the the German banker Fugger in the uh, in the 16th century, also at a period when mm. when interest rates are very low. Then you've got John Law, and then you've got the great fortunes of the gilded age in the 19th century when interest rates are very low and then you go more recently you know you've had this period where sort of um jeff bezos and uh, followed briefly by elon musk being according to my mm. calculation uh, which is just taking a person's fortune and seeing how many sort of man years of labor that commands 
it looks like Musk was the richest, was richer than Law, rich, richer than Rockefeller, and therefore the richest man who ever lived. And and he and it's not inconceivable. God, don't don't that, tell him. No, but it's not don't tell him that. We'll see that, that Musk might follow, you know, John Law's route, and you fast forward, you know, five ten years, and find that actually there's nothing there whatsoever. But there we are. And and that's the story we're about. I mean, that's why this is such a fascinating, you know, a way of thinking, a framework with some very cautionary tales. And and a, you know, a lot of modern financiers have actually grown. You know, if you think about the average career in an investment bank, let's just call it fifteen years. There are people in investment banks today who've never lived in in an inflate in a higher interest rate environment, albeit it's not that high right now. Which, which we're going to come on to. One more story, just, well, a couple more stories. I don't know, because I think this really sets up this idea of what low interest rates do and when you have this framework of thinking. So going, you mentioned the Wall Street crash there. And you, you sort of, that's usually in the context of, you know, a stock price. Everyone just throwing money at stocks and all this kind of stuff. The Gilded Age. Can you just, can you just give us the interest rate context to that story? Because I think it is instructive. So I argue that the 1920s were, to use a phrase, a credit boom gone wrong. You know, you you mentioned earlier that the notion that uh, GDP growth was a reasonable proxy for the natural rate of interest. In the ni- 1920s were a remarkable period of productivity and GDP growth. US economy growing in the year, thanks to advances in electrification, and the rollout of of motor cars and motorized transport um, and, and other new technologies such as radio. And interest, it was a period of no inflation and interest, the central bank engaging in what we would call a, an active monetary policy, uh, trying to keep interest rates low and, and keep the economy going during its downturns. And uh, you have tremendous real estate booms across the country, the, the great skyscrapers of America, like the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building in New York, uh, were both planned at that stage. You had a, a, an extraordinary real estate boom in Chicago, a boom down in, in Florida. And then, and you ha- also had massive capital flows from, from the United States into Germany, where interest rates were higher, and into South America. And so the U.S. capital flows into these countries helped to create a sort of global credit boom. And then uh, U.S. rates start rising. And then in, in 1928, capital flows start to reverse. Uh, Europe goes into, you know, starts suffering an economic collapse that turns into a, a banking crisis. And the U.S. stock market, which is owned uh, to a large extent by, um, by speculative traders, using margin loans, then crashes. And as the stocks crash, the margin loans are called and uh, there are forced sales, which sends the market down very rapidly. And now that that view of, of the great crash is not really a sort of mainstream view because sort of mainstream view put out um, by the late Milton Friedman and, and sort of taken up by Ben Bernanke. My most uh, academic economist t- today is that the, the, you know, there was nothing really wrong with the stock market in, in, in the late, late 1920s. This ignores the fact that if you, if you look at these long-term valuation measures, we often use this measure called the, the cyclically adjusted price-earnings ratio that sort of smooths the earnings over a decade. And you, you look at the 1929 market and it, it's two standard deviations from the mean. You, you, know, you only get to that level in the 20th century on, on, on three occasions, the last one being the dot-com bubble. So, uh, you know, to anyone, uh, you know, who, who understands valuation, the US was clearly in a stock market bubble in the late 1920s, just as it had clearly experienced um, some spectacular real estate bubbles across the country a few years earlier. We're going to come back to the current situation or the last basically the last 20 years and that's going to feed into an energy story that's going to feed into a stock market story crypto bubbles and all the rest of it and actually is quite worryingly going to end up at a societal level but to get there you actually start the book with this fascinating debate in 1849 between Bastier and Proudhon essentially 
both of them arguing, Bastiat on the on sort of the it causes inequality and Proudhon on the other side of the moral implications of interest rates. One arguing that their uh, higher interest rates are a an abomination, they're a tax on the poor and will lead to inequality, and the other are arguing the obverse. Can we just, because that's going to be so crucial to kind of the societal story we're about to tell of the last 15 years, can you just, just give us two minutes on kind of the, the idea of inequality and that, you know, tying it back to the Gilded Age and so on, of what happens when you get these artificially low or naturally low is probably a better phrase, interest rates, and what happens to society? So this debate between the anarchist Proudhon, best known for the comment property is theft, and the, if you want to call him a sort of free market or liberal economist and politician, Frederick Bastiat, is quite enlightening. Proudhon wanted for there to be the creation of a central bank offering loans at close to zero interest. And Proudhon said that this would bring prosperity, further equality to the working man. And Bastiat countered that, first of all, the working people actually had savings themselves and deserved some interest, some reward on their loans. And he also argued that when interest was, when loans were made without interest, the money would be wasted. But most pertinently, he said that when interest was very low, the rich man would go to the bank and say, I'll take your low interest. And he would use the money to make money from it, fortune. So he would enhance his fortune. Whereas the poor man would go to the bank and the bank would tell him to scarper and say that they weren't going to lend him the money, even at low, uh, low interest. And that's exactly what happened, you know, after the global financial crisis, as you know. Interest rates were taken to zero by the Federal Reserve. Those with good connections to Wall Street, the private equity guys and the like, were able to borrow very cheaply and enhance their own fortunes. And so you find, you know, mid-last decade that you know, the, if you look at the, the ranks of the top earners on Wall Street, they're almost all private equity guys. Whereas the poor, the poor people were dubbed, you know, subprime and that the rates of interest were actually raised after the global financial crisis in order that the banks didn't su- suffer further credit losses. So as I argue in the book, the very low interest actually exacerbated inequality. Now, that's contrary to the sort of biblical view of interest. It's contrary to the sort of view of interest put round by the modern writers and economists on inequality like like Thomas Piketty. Mm. Uh, but it seems to be supported and bear out Frederick Bastia's original view. And the interesting thing about Bastia is that as an economist or an economic thinker, he was always, he was particularly interested in the unintended consequences or trade-off of economic policies. He he wrote a famous essay of saying, what is seen and what is unseen? And the uh, most economists, uh, we'll call them bad economists, uh, look only at what is seen. Uh, but if you really want to assess the impact of something, you also need to consider what is generally unseen. And that, I think, is, um, to my mind, the glaring intellectual errors of the last decade is that the policymakers, central bankers, uh, politicians, their cheerleaders in the press only looked at what is seen, namely, for instance, the end of the global financial crisis and the uh, recovery of, of employment levels in the Western countries. And they didn't see, they didn't consider what was unseen namely the asset price inflation and the misallocation well, of, cap- also, of capital, the run-up in, in, in debt, not, not least government debt, the run-up, the, the growth of, sort of financial engineering, and as I mentioned, the, uh, the inequality that followed from that. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews 
and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. It's also, I mean, you, you sum it up in the conclusion to the book where you reference Friedrich Hayek, who we've mentioned a couple of times as well. You know, you've got this short-term incentive to lower interest rates, which is very visible, very obvious, as you're alluding to, the scene. But then you've got this long-term unseen consequences, which play out over 10, 15, 20 years, and our political systems and our incentive systems don't align to those timescales, but that's probably a, a different matter. But okay, so I think this, the global financial crisis, well-known story, obviously the consequence of that is that we, and you can even see like it was triggered by rising interest rates in the late 2000s. And then so you get this massive flood of money coming in. It's actually a bit of a terrible time for commodities. You basically have, uh, obviously, shale comes online, China ceases to, uh, and we're going to get on to China, China ceases to continue building to the same extent, and you have basically low prices and low volatility in commodities, which commodities can't bore, just like uh, you know the average person can't bore 2%. But you have this section, and it's kind of terrifying, really, but the promoter's profit. And this idea that over the last decade, in these ultra-low interest rates environments, you had a complete shift in industry where it was no longer the product guys that were in charge, it was the financial engineers that were in charge. And through stock buybacks, various, well, you describe it very neatly in the book, essentially, it make, you, know, you can engineer profits much more effectively than with low interest rates. So can you talk to that first? And we were talking before we got on, got live about shale, because there's a story there as well. Can you talk to that, please? Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the notion of the promoter's profit is, is actually a sort of an idea of a... Um, of a German Marxist <laughs> economist called Hilferding. And the the idea being that when interests, and we've already alluded to it, when interest costs are very low, the financial sector can borrow and the financiers or promoters benefit by being able to borrow cheaply. They are able to use uh, the public's money, the deposits and savings of broad public for their own profit. So periods of low interest tend to coincide with what we call financial engineering of making profits through finance. And uh, that can happen, as you know, most uh, pretty obviously with, you know, a listed company, uh, it, it providing it, its, its shares have a, a, a trading on an earnings yield higher than the cost of corporate borrowing, which is tax deductible, uh, you, can, uh, you can enhance your earnings per share by borrowing to buy back your shares. And given that you know, many senior managers are paid according to both earnings per share growth, uh, return on equity measures, or, or simply just stock price, then you're, you, you can see that they were incentivized to engage in this financial engineering. You then have the um, private equity guys that we discussed, then you have the leverage buyback phenomenon, sorry, the, le- the leverage uh, takeover phenomenon and associated with, say, the likes of, you know, the creation of, of Kraft Heinz uh, as, a, as a sort of a food conglomerate or you saw the concentration in the beverage, in the, in the bit, global beer industry. And those are, you know, debt-driven mergers. And we had, you know, tremendous merger boom, immensely profitable for Wall Street, which originated the debt. I think I think I cite that AT&T, uh, which acquired the uh, Time Warner media interests, you know, had more debt outstanding than Portugal and Thailand. So, you know, hugely profitable for the bankers who put this, you know, these you know, very destructive deals together. In, and, and, you know, whether it, you know, sometimes these deals work but but with Kraft Heinz you know it, d- it doesn't seem to have worked you had the phenomenon of the so-called platform companies like you know particularly in pharmaceuticals which the poster child was Valiant a company that sort of that soared and and crashed uh, in in the last decade so huge amount of financial engineering but at the same time you have um what appears to be declining levels of investment and of the investment that takes place at these very low interests, we have two rather sort of contrasting phenomena. We, on the one hand, you have capital 
trapped in businesses that with very low returns on capital uh, that would otherwise have gone bust. And these are the so-called zombie companies. And zombie companies appear to be very bad for discouraged investment and, and very bad for productivity growth. And on the other hand, you have these sort of pie-in-the-sky venture capital investments, you know, Silicon Valley flooded with money. As Jim Grant, the financial writer, says, a little-known fact about unicorns, the $1 billion-plus uh, Silicon Valley companies, little-known fact about unicorns is that they feed on interest rates, and the, the lower interest rates, the better. So you wouldn't have had this great sort of VC investment boom over the last decade had rates been at a higher level. Mm. Uh, just to jump in there before we get into commodities, I, I mean, I, I remember reading this section, and one of the fascinating things was when you list the largest capital destruction events by a company in, in, in the world history, is it um, WeWork and Uber, extraordinary amount of money that these unicorns or some of them have taken up you know, and never generated a profit. Well, they, I mean, in, in WeWork, that was it sort of, it, it crashed from a sort of, uh, you know, from a pre-market valuation of sort of north of $50 billion. I, I, I think it went down to somewhere between five and 10. But those were only, I mean, the pre-market valuations were highly speculative. I mean, if you remember, WeWork was just a jumped up you know, renter out of office space, <laughs> which you could do over an app rather than, you know, calling a conventional broker. So that was clear. And then Uber, you know, is a business that lost more than $20 billion in its first few years. And and again, not not being satisfied with the modest uh, success, or what well, I, mean, I suppose you could call it a great success in taxi ride hailing or cab ride hailing, uh, it then sort of ventured into, if you remember, sort of autonomous cars and flying taxis. And again, you know, completely pie in the sky ventures that, you know, were never really going to be realized. But the very easy money encourages, you know, great credulity. Mm. And I, and you, and that point is, is, you know, reinforced or brought home by, you know, the crypto bubble where you see the, you know, the collective valuations of of all those cryptocurrencies going up to $3 trillion and then crashing with the so-called crypto winter. And then you have the sort of frauds emerging at FTX. And it, it becomes quite clear that the venture capitalists and the backers of FTX have really not looked into deeply what was going on. They haven't really, as far as one can see, conducted any proper due diligence. Uh, because again, in periods of very low interest, and very speculative periods, you know, you both people are, you know, are, are more credulous. And, and as Walter Badgett says, that that creates an opportunity for what Badgett calls ingenious mendacity. And we've seen a great deal of ingenious mendacity in recent years. The, the unfolding of FTX is going to be a fascinating story of the interweaving of finance, politics, regulation, etc. But let, let's, let's, we, we, that's a rabbit hole I want to avoid. But I interrupted you on commodities. So I'd love to get your, you know, because obviously we've seen that similar, as Jeff Curry mentioned, that pie in the sky. You know, it's very easy to invest in some of these much more sort of esoteric. Well, well, let's, I mean, let's take, so let's take, we could take, you know, a 20-odd year view. Yes. And say that the U.S. commodity super cycle, I say in inverted commas, takes off uh, in uh, the early 2000s, at a time when U.S. interest rates are lower and China is ramping up its domestic capital investment. Then, if you remember, it's checked the super cycle by the global financial crisis but China doubles down on its investment, domestic investment, and in particular develops this absolute mammoth real estate bubble, which is you know, a huge consumer of cement, of steel. And the Chinese, and you see after the global financial crisis, all these commodities, industrial commodities, are moving to two standard deviations above the mean. So what I uh, with my training at the investment firm GMO, I was trained to call uh, a bubble, two standard deviations. So you see across the board bubbles. 
You see bubbles also in um, in agricultural commodities. And I argue that the Arab Spring was actually induced by the monetary policy, uh, the easy money policies unleashed on the world by the Federal Reserve that served to push up grain prices. Anyhow, then you have what's interesting then is that the, you, you have the commodities checked by the taper tantrum, if you remember, of 2013. And that China then, in China's uh, investment growth, takes a step down and commodities, the industrial commodities, are hard hit. And you remember the sort of, uh, you know, there's a moment where you know, it looks like Glencore is going bust, or at least the market thinks that. And at the same time, you have a lot of money going in. So you have commodities into a bear market, and then you have, um, but money pouring from Wall Street into shale into shale oil investments in the US. And that is largely funded with high, high yield debt. And the high yield debt is very easy to sell at a time of low interest. And money then gets set, you know, ploughed into the likes of Chesapeake and Pioneer and Whiting Petroleum and the likes who um, boom and bust. <laughs> and in aggregate, the investors in shale, as far as I understand, don't make money at that time, but U.S. production, oil, energy production, soars. So, I, I, you know, they, the U.S. I don't know what the you probably know better than I do how many barrels of oil a day it adds, but sort of it becomes you know self sufficient in in, in oil uh, as a result of this investment. So, and, and where are we today? Um, it would seem as if the oil investment has has run off, and that the Shale, you know, oil investment is down, and and the shale oil is an investment which ru- runs off pretty quickly, as far as I can understand. That 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 is not being replaced. So you probably get oil shortages going forward, and you know you get the the other industrial commodities having been depressed somewhat from an investment perspective over recent years. So that they've been doing relatively well. Mm. Well, I don't think I've heard such a succinct and uh, fascinating description of the of the cycle behind the cycle, if you'd like. And, uh, and much of this we've talked about, but not, I guess, in this context on various episodes. Before we get to China, and I remember actually in 2013, 14, um, at the FT conference, seeing Michael Pettis, who's, uh, if anyone's interested on the Chinese economy, uh, he's based in Beijing and follow him, talking about that investment cycle. Just putting it in the global context, one of the fascinating things that you draw out from the book is essentially the ramifications of the Federal Reserve printing money and low interest rates and quantitative easing, et cetera, et cetera, is that it then fuels a credit bubble across the rest of the world and not least in China. Can you talk to that a bit? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the point, well, first of all, I'd say this, that there's always been you know, in the era of sort of modern capitalism, there's always been a financial centre, whether it was London in the 19th century or or New York since then. And it's always been the case that when interest rates are low in the core of the financial system, then capital tends to flow to the periphery where yields are higher, what we call you know, nowadays the, the global carry trade. And we can see that, well, you can actually see it, you know, I mean, you go back even earlier to, you know, at Amsterdam in the 17th century, lending into to London. So that's, you know, one part of the story. And the other part is that, you know, the US dollar is the global reserve currency. And what happens to the dollar, the rates charged on dollar loans uh, influence rates charged on all other currencies. You know, particularly, take a country like China that has been unofficially pegging its currency to the dollar. Well, if you're going to peg your currency to the dollar, you're obliged to import the US monetary policy. So you see from the turn of the century, when the Greenspan Fed takes interest rates uh, in the US, the Fed funds rate down to 1%, China's interest rates come very low and don't fall that low. They're sort of the, the People's Bank of China maintains a spread above the Fed funds rate. But it's at that time that you see the real estate bubble and the investment boom and the credit boom starting to 
take place in China. And you see interest rates kept in China well below the level of inflation. And this is, you know, what, what Michael Pettis writes about is, is financial repression in China, which is just keeping rates below, deposit rates below the level of inflation. And that involves a, um, a massive transfer of income and wealth from Chinese savers in the banking system into the you know, to Chinese corporations that are able to borrow cheaply. And that is what fuels what, to my mind, is the greatest real estate bubble that has ever been seen, both in terms of valuation, aggregate valuation, and in terms of building. I mean, the go back to, you, know, do you remember we were talking about John Law and the 2% uh, yield on the Mississippi stock. Well, mm. you know, by uh, you know, 2013, 14, Chinese real estate was you know, trading on a 2% rental yield. In other words, a, on a 50-year buyback. And that, that was an inducement to you know, incredible building boom. I, I don't know if you've been to... I haven't been to China recently, but I did visit several times early in the last decade. And you go to these cities, you know, like Wuhan, actually, which I visited, and the outskirts of these cities were you know, mile after mile after mile of, of newly constructed high-rises. And with massive, from what one can see, massive vacancy levels. So uh, a highly speculative real estate market. Mm. And to my mind, you know, that was always very vulnerable and always likely to suck the growth out of China, you know, that it was likely to depress China's natural growth rate. And for, for your commodity investors, that poses a problem because you know, the, the big issue for commodity investors going forward is to, you know, to what extent does China's, you know, the end of the China economic miracle, to what extent does that play on the demand for commodities going forward, I can't, you know, I can't really give you the answer, but I'm sure your your listeners will have their own views. Well, I think it's it's we've we've sort of, I mean, that sort of fundamental debate that's been happening on this podcast for two years is kind of the interplay of a lack of investment going into traditional hydrocarbons, the energy transition, and the trillions of dollars that needs, you know, to to electrify the economy. And then, yeah, the, the broader macroeconomic cycles. So we're kind of at a pivot point now, bringing it up to the present day, where you're seeing the, the, the Fed, Jerome Powell, really aggressively pushing up interest rates, you know, after the Trump administration did a lot of arm twisting to keep them low. Uh, and as you mentioned in the book, with, you know, with many Goldman staffers on the team, let's assume interest rates normalize back to some sort of natural rate, uh, you know, and we're back in a normal environment for interest rates. They're not unnaturally low. What does that mean for the world? And then, you know, I'd like to go on to the sort of the obverse of that, which is the political pressure is too high and interest rates starts getting lowered again in the face of a stock market collapse and all this kind of stuff. You know, where are we, where are we back to? Well, I think that, I mean, I, th I think you're, you're, you're answering your own question. You see, the, <laughs> if, I, mean, I think everyone, not everyone, I mean, there's a gen I think there's a growing consensus that interest rates were too low in the last decade and that that contributed to asset price bubbles and the build-up of debt. So I don't think, you know, we'll be shocking anyone by making that comment. The question then is, can you normalise rates uh, under those conditions? And my hunch would be to say probably not. Because if you've got very high debt levels and very inflated asset prices, as you start to normalize interest rates, you bring down the asset prices, which, you know, obviously we saw last year with broad stock and bond indices being off, you know, around 20% for the year. But you also then, you know, raise debt servicing costs and you probably, you take these um, in the zombie companies that we alluded to, and you put them in a difficult position. You take the companies that have been financial engineering and heavily leveraged, and they find it difficult to roll over their debt. So I think I'm afraid to say, and we'll see whether this thesis is borne out over the course of the next year or so, is that you can't really normalise rates without crashing 
both the economy and the financial system. So, so I'm, you know, that's I'm afraid the sort of the bearish <laughs> thrust of my book was that you know that the low interest rates have put one into position of the economy and the financial system into position of disequilibrium that that was difficult to get out of, or you know, to use a sort of phrase uh, that you used here a bit of you know that the day of reckoning um, uh, you know finally arrives, and I, I think you know, a, a, as inflation has taken off that that has forced central banks to raise interest rates however reluctantly but that you know has posed problems you know not least as you're probably aware housing markets or real estate markets they tend to decline with a rather long fuse so you've got last year you saw us long-term mortgage rates rising from three to six percent uh, you've seen uk sort of short-term mortgage rates rising from I don't know, say around 2% to uh, just short of 6%. Last week, or uh, the, you know, one of the, the UK regulators warned that you know, three quarters of a million households in, uh, in the UK are on the verge of, of defaulting on their mortgages. So I think you've got a lot of real estate problems, you know, obviously led by China in the background. And, and we'll just have to to work these things out. You know, you're probably... You know, but how do you do that? Very... I, mean, I mean, it's so worrying though, right? Because, you know, you, you end this book on this, you know, we, we bring back our friend Friedrich Hayek talking about as the minute you start to sort of interfere with, in his, you know, his argument, money prices, you're starting to favour one group over another. And, you know, the, the road to serfdom is that inevitable road to totalitarianism. I mean, if we don't normalize, the argument is that we end up having zombie economies and stagnation and rising inequality and lack of access to housing and all these things is, is going to cause a generational divide as well, which ends up at the rise of authoritarian regimes, which you argue in the book we're already seeing. I mean, it's a pretty bleak future if we're stuck. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I think there's you know an age-old fight between <laughs> you know between freedom, capitalism, and and those who would control the system. And you know what's perhaps different today is that a lot of people who you know in the policy-making, academic world, or in in the corporate world, who would sort of who dress themselves in the sort of garb of being liberal from an economic perspective, actually advocate rather sort of what Hayek considers sort of incipient <laughs> incipient um I don't want to call them totalitarian but but you know um controlling policies. So yeah I think there is you know, I, just as when Hayek wrote the road to serfdom, there is a sort of battle ahead between those who would live in a you know democratic capitalist market based system in which prices are Set by individuals freely trading, uh, or those who are living under a system increasingly under control of of, of governments uh, and and large corporations. So um, the the battle uh, battle continues really. Mm. And I, I notice with my book, I mean, the book is not really a you know political book, but I notice because I've been critical of the central bankers manipulating interests. My book has sort of been taken up more by the sort of libertarian <laughs> side than than by the uh, you know by the if you will by the sort of policy making. So the policy making world you know is represented by the FT and the Economist. Um, you know, are, are very disdainful of my book, whereas the the more sort of libertarian types, the the Mises Institute, if you've heard of that, so think you know it's the bee's knees. Well, interesting. Well, uh, well, you're, <laughs> I don't know where that puts the HC inside a podcast. Well, that you know, but that, but that's not particularly surprising because go back to what we were saying earlier. I mean, interest is all about distribution of income and wealth, and in the end, one's views on interest are inevitably going to be political. I mean, the Keynesians don't believe in interest, so they yeah. think that interest is unnecessary. Whereas Friedrich Hayek and and his his lot, the Austrian school believed that interest was, you know, innate to mankind, it reflected man's, what they call their time preference, their, mm. their man, you know, man's innate um, um, impatience. So, so either you believe that 
interest is an essential attribute of mankind, in which case you want to be very careful of stifling it any more than you want to stifle a person's access to oxygen, or you don't believe it, in which case you prepare to get rid of, of interest and, and, and perhaps enhance your own power as a, as a policymaker at the same time. Let's, let's, let's wrap up on commodities. I would love to sort of know, well, can you just sort of give us, you know, what you think what might happen going forwards and really kind of what gates we should look for that give us an indication as to how it's going to play out from an interest rate perspective? So my hunch is that regardless of the sort of near, near-term risks of a sort of financial collapse, I think over the medium term, interest rates will be kept low in real terms relative to inflation. And there's a reasonable risk, regardless, again, of what is happening to inflation over the next six months or so. There's reasonable risk over the next decade that the central banks, fearful of the impact of, of high rates, uh, will keep rates low. And that means inflation is likely to run away a bit, just as it did in the 1970s. And then we've talked a bit about underinvestment in oil and to some, some extent underinvestment in, uh, con- in, in industrial commodities, especially if you've got this um, so-called transition, energy transition lying ahead. So if you have um, a period of underinvestment in commodities at a time when inflation is possibly going to be running hot for several years and interest rates kept below the rate of inflation, that, that, that should be a pretty bullish outlook for commodities. I think, you know, you throw in the fact uh, that globalization is unraveling somewhat and, and countries are now looking to uh, what they call, as you know, friend-shoring, uh, moving, their, uh, moving their supply chains to friendly countries that, you know, I'm sure your listeners have thought, you know, many of them will have some thoughts on, on whether that spurs demand for uh, commodities, probably. If you have interest rates very low, governments uh, and, and economies weak, governments are likely to sort of ramp up their own infrastructure investment. So that's quite bullish. And then you look at the experience of the 1930s, sorry, the 1970s, you find that uh, you know, commodities on the whole and commodity stocks outperformed. And if you look at the 1920s and 30s, you see that, and this is quite interesting, is that that US oil and energy investment was very low, surprisingly, in the 1920s. And the result was that despite despite, uh, the US entering into a Great Depression by 1936, so seven years after the crash, US energy stocks had doubled in, in price whereas the rest of the market was still substantially down. So I, 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 I've been, um, you know, my own sort of outlook. I mean, I say one other thing is that as the bubble bursts in this sort of virtual wealth, you get this shift from uh, purely speculative assets like cryptocurrencies into real assets. In, in the 1920s, they called it a, the flucht into Sackwerten, you know, flight into real things of value. So I think if you put that all together, you you might expect sort of quite a turbulent ride for commodities, but for them to be in aggregate a a, a reasonably secure way of of transferring of of, of transferring wealth through time in the in the years to come. So we'll see about that. Yeah. Yeah, it is going to be fascinating, right? And I think the it's going to be just talking on that transition piece. And we've got a few episodes coming up, trying to thread the the supply and the demand needle, where you know demand essentially doesn't stop, despite um, our desires, perhaps from a decarbonisation standpoint. Meanwhile, supply definitely is. It's going to be interesting as well what higher interest rates do right now for a lot of these pie in the sky, uh, dare I say it, sort of speculative technological investments in alternative fuels, etc. And we've covered hydrogen on the podcast. And, you know, that has a lot of benefits, but also a lot of, uh, a lot of question marks over it, you know, how that all plays out as well. I, I think it's true that, that the it's the case that the very low interest rate environment and the speculative spirits unleashed by that has 
encourage people to invest in, in a lot of projects, whether they're related to you know, electric vehicles or battery technology or the like, that were never really going to pay off. You know, they, <laughs> I think Walter Badgett said <laughs> after the Overend Gurney uh, crash of, of, of 1866, he said, if a child had walked into the city of London, he could have lent better. So I, I think if a child had been investing in venture capital, in the last decade, uh, he'd have made um, better bets than a lot of the professionals. So yes, when interest rates rise, then that's a sign that capital is being rationed. And that means that capital will have to be better spent. And that, you know, frankly, is a good thing, because it'll bring people to their sense, you know, and, and actually, it's really important for the economy, that investment is channeled to the right things, because that ultimately leads to, uh, you know, a better society and and less inequality as threaded through this book. Well, it's been a absolutely fascinating discussion. I wish we could continue. Um, the book is The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest by Edward Chancellor, published by Atlantic Monthly Press. I cannot recommend it enough to our listeners. And, uh, you know, hopefully, Edward, we can have you back on in a, in a couple of years and, and see where the story is playing out. Okay, we'll, we'll see if I've got anything right or wrong. <laughs> Anyhow, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.